So a short version of this was after that, I invested $120,000 in another technology company to create the game. Mm. And they didn't have the skills either. So I switched to a third one and lost more money. So the whole thing was a big money sucking hole. And I was using my business, which was doing very well, to subsidize it. Another money sucking hole. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive these five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I created from the lessons I've learned from all of my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all AE Stotts Academy courses. Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from AE Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Marie Gervais. Marie, are you ready to rock? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> I want to introduce you to the audience. And, you know, we just had like a really interesting conversation before we turned on the recorder, which I really appreciate. And I learned something also about long-term versus short-term gains from therapy and discussions. But I want to introduce you to the audience. Marie Gervais is CEO of Shift Management, and she offers targeted supervisory and middle management training team coaching, and organizational capacity development to businesses and organizations. She has developed an award-winning program using online courses and live web coaching to help managers develop the confidence and skills they need to lead. For a competitive advantage, a clear focus on communication and conflict resolutions, skills will get you there. You can build a healthy, inclusive, best-in-industry work culture. Dr. Gervais is your guide to success. Her upcoming book, The Spirit of Work, is scheduled for publication in November 2021. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't get enough from this podcast, she is the host of the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. Go check her out there. Marie, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Thank you for the introduction and the uh, dramatic way of doing it, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> You're the star of the show. Well, why, thank you. The uh, other tidbits would be that this is my fourth career being a business owner. It's my 14th year in my fourth career. So um, I get bored easily, but I haven't been bored as a business owner. (laughs) So there's that. I'm also a visual artist and I used to direct choirs and theater, which I don't have time to do anymore, but I still do visual, visual arts. Mm, And I see Uh, visualizations behind you and you like some things up on your walls. I mean, leadership, learning, intercultural shift, some of the words I see up there. Maybe you can just give us like a little tidbit about the value that you bring to your clients. Yeah, so for my clients, I I bring two things. I bring an intuitive spiritual approach that helps them to remove blocks that they have been sabotaging them for years and very strong business strategy. I've coached hundreds of businesses through their difficult moments And I can usually identify in minutes what the issues are and what they need to do next. But they won't do them until they remove the blocks. Hmm. So it's that combination of the two that's really 
that's pretty significant. And it, it really is a sort of a really valuing of that, of the person or the people so much so that they feel really cherished. And most of us don't feel appreciated, cherished, even acknowledged or seen most of the time. So that piece where I feel like I embrace the spirit of that other person really helps them to blossom and to move forward in a, in a place of space and safety. And it's also very useful for companies who are so wounded. <laughs> so mm. many companies are so when workplaces are very unhappy. So I have pretty much dedicated the business to increasing workplace happiness by increasing leadership skill. And that comes with the two sides, that intuitive side and that strategic side. And the skills get built in the middle. Interesting. And, you know, it is surprising how many people are unhappy with work. And people always ask me, how, why are you so happy with work? And I said, well, I said, my advice, don't listen to me, but my advice is quit. And what I meant by that is that when I found environments that I just didn't enjoy, you know, obviously, you know, if it's a family or a relationship, I'm going to try to change that. But if I can't change it, I just left and said, well, you know, I'm not up for that. So I look for something else. So that's kind of the way I dealt with it. And I built an environment around me of kind of happiness and all that. And that's my advice in that space. And I just wanted to also mention one thing. There's some listeners out there that are going, what, what do you mean block? I don't even understand what block means. Well, people grow up with unconscious tracks playing in the back of their mind. That money blocks, for example, people have blocks to earning. They have blocks to saving. They have blocks to debt. They have blocks to money mistakes that they made that have caused money trauma. Those are some money blocks that they have. People have relationship blocks where they just, they experienced, you know, fight or flight as they were growing up and that's all there was. And so they don't know how to have a loving constructive relationship or, or even a constructive workplace relationship because at the first instance where something scares them, they just, they, and they're not even aware they're being scared. They just quit. So mm -hmm. um, they quit mentally. They leave the building mentally and they just they're just not there and they won't deal with anything or they're just highly confrontational so that's an example of relationship blocks or people keep attracting the wrong partner they keep finding the wrong person over and over again and they really similar characteristics each time and they know it logically but they don't know how to address it so that would be an example of a relationship block people have career blocks they have relationship blocks they have health blocks most things that are wrong with our health with our bodies have to do with an emotional issue that's manifesting physically in the body. So mm -hmm. when you address that, a lot of it, a lot of things just clear up. And so that's what I mean by blocks. So removing those pieces internally that you are not aware are there. They're your, your life that you can see is the tip of the iceberg and everything underneath is the result of your culture, your family, your environment, the experiences that you had, the opportunities you had, and the obstacles you had to overcome and how you face them. And so all of that then builds into who you are, but it becomes, it's pretty unconscious. And so taking pieces of it, making it conscious can be helpful. It's so for the listeners out there, you know, think about the, the interesting thing about blocks is that they don't, you don't see them, you know, that easily. What you see is the result of them, I guess, like, yes. you know, you're afraid to get close to somebody or, you know, you're afraid of confrontation because you experienced a situation where confrontation really, really hurt you or something like that. And so what you see is that, you know, you're not able to achieve the goals that you want or maybe the happiness that you want. And I think what I take away from what you're saying is that it's not just because you're weak or 
you know, you don't know how to handle the situation. It's just that there's probably something that happened in your past that's set up the way you think about something and the way you feel about something. And it may have worked to protect you at that time, but now it may be working to hold you back. And so exactly. the, that's the exactly. idea is try to yeah. identify that. And I guess that's, uh, that's you know, a great lesson. I'd love to, to hear that. And, it, you know, just for the listeners out there and for myself, you know, I'm just thinking, hmm, okay, what are the things that I want to achieve or what are the things that I want to experience that I'm not and what potentially could there be that's blocking me from doing that and just working harder doesn't, doesn't do get it. yeah so no. great no, well, I think no, that's, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do it it's also not logical you can't talk your way through it and create a strategy and follow it in fact if you create the strategy at a certain point you'll always resist getting it done so and that's because we have this false dichotomy where we think that you know we have a logical side, which we think is the really important side, but it's mm-hmm. it's not even it's like ten percent of our thinking and our processing, that logical side. Mm-hmm. And then we we have an emotional side that's related to our physiology. We have a spirit. We have a heart. We have a mind. All of those things are not the same thing as logic, and they all operate simultaneously at the same <laughs> time. You can't just Say I'm 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 not. People will say all the time I'm not mad, and you can tell that they're really that everybody's going yes you are, <laughs> yeah. So the thing is that they operate simultaneously at the same time until you recognize what the triggers are and you can start to name them and release them. You really you're being ridden by your emotions instead of you riding the emotions. So, <laughs> so I, I'm picturing our life is a 150 piece orchestra. And our logic is the flute player down there, that one little lone flute player that's playing out that logic. But there's a lot of other factors, you know, in play. The logic is probably the notes on the page. It's not even the music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big believer in logic. I'm a very logical person in what I do. But but it is really only a fraction of what you need to make things work for you in your life. Great. That's a great lesson for all of us. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us okay. your story. Well, most of my my uh, industry clients are for, in the manufacturing industry. And I belong to one of the manufacturing industry networks that was a large for, for C-suite manufacturing decision makers. And I really learned a lot while I belonged to it. I belonged to it for five years, but it was very expensive. And it went from being $3,000 a year to $20,000 a year for an individual membership. <laughs> and so that's why I don't belong to it today because it wasn't worth that much to me. Mm-hmm. But during that time, people kept saying how if they could just find a way to give their managers more practice in a way that didn't cost the company, because when managers make mistakes, it always affects the company in a huge way. And that was part of so many discussions that I attended and lots of speakers addressed that. And so I thought, well, really, everything is going towards gamification. What I And I do, I have, I'm, I'm really interested in games for learning and really interested in sort of the whole process of how some people can experience because my background is in drama. So having a world that you experience is very, really, I love that. I love that whole piece of being in the world. So I thought, well, what if, we could create a world that managers could go into. This was before Google Glasses had been, and immersive experiences had been invented. And so I, what if I could create something like that? I guess the only way to do it would be through a game. So I pitched the idea to some of the people that were there. Like there was the regional North American regional manager for Johnson & Johnson. And like they were really big companies that 
And I said, what do you think about this? Is this something you think that's worthwhile pursuing? And they all said, yeah, that's a great idea. This is something we could really use. So <laughs> that's the beginning of my mistake. So, <laughs> so I, thought, I thought that would be a great idea. And the thing is that I had been doing work online and courses online, but I had never created a game and I hadn't worked through the process of creating a game before. And so I started to think about what I would do and how I would get practice doing that. And I thought, I know. I should create an app. I should create a management decision-making app. So I'll start with that and then I'll move into the game. And then the game I'm gonna to pitch to this whole audience of people that are decision-makers that could send me to their training and development people and we can start piloting it and see how that goes. So again, I pitched it to the group. I pitched it to about 20 people and they said, oh yeah, that's a great idea. But you know, just because people say it's a good idea, they haven't put any skin in the game, right? So yeah, good idea. You should do it. And then they gave me a few tips, which I thought was really useful. Come back to us when you finish the app. So I, um, so I invested in the phone app, which was $20,000 and got me nowhere because I went to a technology company that didn't know what they were doing with that particular type of game because I didn't research it properly. So the short version of this is after that, I invested $120,000 in another technology company to create the game mm. and they didn't have the skills either so i switched to a third one and lost more money so the whole thing was a big money sucking hole and i was using my business which was doing very well to subsidize it another money sucking hole bad idea <laughs> that's the context <laughs> so i'm just curious because you know these ideas start off with so much excitement and opportunity when was the moment when you realized all is lost? Well, about halfway through. And before that, it's, I started to realize that, A, I didn't have the necessary experience to find the right people. But this did give me experience. I mean, I certainly learned a bunch of stuff, which I'll tell you later. So I didn't understand the tech process. I didn't know what a scrum was. I didn't know what the phases of development were in a, in a tech product. And I didn't understand how that there was always going to be a disconnect between people who speak code and people who speak ideas <laughs> and people who are going to buy it. All there are like three planets in solar systems, in fact. And so like, I didn't know that at the time. And because I always go with idea first rather than research in the past, I did. I don't do that mm. anymore. Now I research really carefully. <laughs> yeah, I didn't research first. I went with idea, checked it out to see a, a segment of the market who might be interested and then went from there. But I didn't have partners right from the, from the beginning. So the partners were sort of flimsy and they weren't really committed and they had no investment in it. So they didn't, it wasn't, they gave me some great ideas to get going with it, but it wasn't actually, I wasn't necessary for a commitment. Like I really needed a commitment and somebody who was going to work with me. And I was a really poor, low, poor risk for them mm. because I didn't have the experience. So why should they invest? I didn't have a track record in that area. I had track record in other areas. And several people kept telling me, huh, you know, you do this really well. I'd be interested in talking to you about that. And I just ignored them and went on with, oh, yeah, but I want to do the game, right? So I lost business as a result of that single focus. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, okay. and that's when I started. I realized when I, my accountant said to me, what are you doing? You've been subsidizing this thing for two years and it's, you know, it's not going anywhere. And I went, yeah, right. That's when it hit Those me. darn accountants. I felt, oh, I felt, I felt so stupid and so ashamed yeah. and I you know, and my husband said to me, so how are you going to start paying back this debt? And then I lost it. I thought, I'm never going to pay back this debt. This was the stupidest mistake I ever made. And if I would have just continued to invest my business that was doing so well, 
I would have been light years ahead of where I am instead of sunk into this hole. Mm. Yeah, I felt terrible about it. The worst problem was the shame. I just felt so ashamed. I felt like everybody on the street was looking at me and thinking, look, that woman does not know how to manage her money, right? Look how Mm. she she totally messed that up. Of course, it's totally wrong, Mm. but that's that was it. So it was stopping me from doing other good things with my business. Took me a while to get through that. Yeah. Part of the purpose of the podcast is to reach the listeners out there who are struggling in the middle of that right now. And they are feeling that shame. They are feeling depressed. And so I think, you know, I really appreciate that you would share, you know, how you were feeling through that process. So let me ask you, what lessons did you learn from the experience? Well, it was really helpful for working with future clients in the tech industry and in the financing, the financial industry, because I understood some of the processes from that. And then I took on another job shortly afterwards, which was a job that I thought, you know, I'm never going to do this again because I don't like doing this kind of work and it's way out of my wheelhouse. And it was working really carefully with a tech company that wanted to roll out a a version of their product. And I thought, this is not my wheelhouse. And I I realized that, but I had so much data from all the interpersonal problems that I saw. (laughs) I thought, oh, I can really work with the you know, my workplace communications and conflict resolution stuff. This is like, this is gold. <laughs> stuff is gold. So I started to think that way. I was, I was able to, to move past the shame. I discovered something called the consciousness map. You might want to just look that up. Mm. Consciousness map. And what it is, it has emotions, their vibrational frequency and what the mindset is and how you see a divine being as, in, as influencing. So you might see, for example, if you see your divine being as being a mean, angry God, or if you see a benevolent being, or if you see a goddess that's part of the, you know, the nature thing, you're going to see your failures and your successes differently. So it's really interesting, this consciousness mapping, and it can be used in multiple different ways. So the very bottom, underneath every single emotion, the one where you're just the lowest of the low is shame. Mm. I see it. I'm looking at the map right now. In fact, as you said that, and it's under God view, life view, and then level, and then at the bottom, shame. Yep. Yeah, and so in the middle is anger. People think anger is the worst, but it isn't. So it's it's really interesting that when, so I I part of the way of getting out of that was personal development. I worked with a coach named Sharina Mayani that I interviewed on my on my podcast, and I worked with a couple of other coaches, and I discovered all the gifts that I'd learned from this mistake, and I started to dig my way out of the debt. Mm. And I also focused on what I was doing well in my business and started to be proud of that. And I started to see debt as good debt and bad debt. And I thought, you know what? This was actually not bad debt because for one thing, it allowed me to write off all my taxes for a while. And the other thing was that it allowed me to learn a whole bunch of stuff that I would never have gotten before if I wouldn't have been through that experience. Mm. And I still have all of the stuff I created, like all the scenarios I created and all of those things. And that has come in handy in multiple other other work. So Mm. yeah, so that was, so that part, that was good, but I did have to go through a lot of, I had to go through my own personal reflection process and do that assisted with somebody else, like not, not only on my own in order to get, to get past it. Mm. And so that was, that was what I did. And the lessons I I would say was, you know, first off that take risks, but be calculated. You know, I'm not like most women who take, who have a really risk averse. Like I was like, yes, I'm going to do this. It's a good idea. And let's just dive in and I'll find the money and I'll make it work. Right. <laughs> so, but now I've kind of learned my lesson. I've gone backwards and I take calculated lists. I do really proper market research and I'm very careful about each step of the way, testing every point with potential clients. And those clients have to have a skin in the game if I'm trying a new idea. So that's what I learned from it. 
Got it. And just to be clear, the book that I'm looking at is called The Map of Consciousness Explain, A Proven Energy yeah. Scale to Actualize Your Ultimate Performance by David R. Hawkins. Yes, that's it. It's been around for a while, mm. but it's a very useful tool. It doesn't become dated. Kind of like, you know, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Yep. There's some things in there where I'm going, mm, you can tell that was a later, but most of the stuff that he has to say is really interesting. And one interesting thing that comes, comes out of that Napoleon Hill book, which I think is my also my learning from this worst investment is he created in his mind a series of people he admired and that were successful in different ways that were either past or present in his life and every night before he went to bed he would consult with them on a business problem for a, a period of time and they, they became real personages and it was kind of weird he kept thinking am i going crazy with this idea and then he met one of the people who was alive and mentioned something about it. And the guy turned around and said exactly to him what he had imagined in his imaginary conversation with the guy. And they had never discussed anything like this before. Mm. Just met him for the first time kind yep. of thing. And <laughs> so it was, it was really interesting. So he must have been tapping into some collective wisdom. And I think that I started to realize that I can't do everything alone. I have to tap into the collective wisdom, the actual wisdom, and I have to start using the people around me and the research that's available to me more effectively and not try to do it alone. Mm. So let me summarize some of the things I took away. I mean, one of the things I just wrote down as you told about that is that many uh, years ago, I gave a presentation about one of the businesses that I have with my best friend here in Thailand, a coffee business. And we gave a presentation to a group of people and I said, you know, maybe in the middle, I said, I'd like to introduce you to my, our advisory board. It's very distinguished. And then I, I showed a, a book of, you know, Napoleon Hill and I showed the book of Dr. Deming and I showed the book of all the key people who have influenced our lives. And I said, we base a lot of what we do based upon our very distinguished advisory board, which I just showed a lot of books. But the truth is, is if you read the books of what people, you know, you're getting, you know, a honed down message of what they say. So that's the first thing you reminded me of. The second thing is when you validate an idea, the best way to validate is to get people to pay you cash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I think that's where you alluded to the fact that people are like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. You know, that's all right. But, you know, in the end, that's not the, you know, that's not. Well, and I wasn't actually confident to ask for it, but I am now. Yep. Like, yep. so now I'm going to say, yeah, for this is what it's going to be. Are you interested in it? All right. It's going to cost this much. You want to commit? Yep. Right. Yep. And I'm like fully expecting them to say yes. And if yep. they aren't, I don't take it personally. But before I was not expecting them to say yes. Mm. And so that should have been a red flag for me. But, you know, yep. you live and learn. The other one is, you know, there's this, you know, tech is everywhere and, you know, tech's supposed to be getting easier and all that. But the truth is, is that we oftentimes face a pretty significant tech hurdle. Yes. And when we get an idea, it could be a good idea, but the actual challenge of implementing it in the tech space is much harder than it appears. And I, I did have one, another guest that developed a game. It was called Pictionary and it was a guy named Rob Angel. He was episode 243 mm -hmm. and basically... But the thing about his development was he was just writing things down on pieces of paper, you know, and it's like there was no tech hurdle. And so, you know, one of the questions I want to raise for the listeners out there is to think, how could you remove the tech hurdle to test your idea? And I think that that's a real challenge. And if you could do that, then you could potentially validate that, okay, now it's worth going in and trying to develop some of this tech. 
You know, I'm really glad you said that because that's actually one of the most important things that I learned. And that's been the basis for all my business decision-making about things. I use a lot of tech tools, but I'm just, I'm looking first for, you know, can it be written down? Can it be done with soft technology? Is this something that can be reused with something that is already existing or not? And, you know, like, how can we use what we've already got to get the same results? And it really transformed my, the way I was working with people online. Mm -hmm. So people have to have a real connection to a human being or they just don't learn. They have to have a, a collegial context in which they discuss things. And then the online content and the way that it works reinforces the content learning but it actually doesn't make a difference how many bells and whistles you have and how many fancy stuff is in there. What matters is how much they relate to the content, Mm. right? So if you're looking at that first, then anything you add on is going to be value added to the experience, the optimal experience for the customer. And, but I have people from tech companies approaching me all the time and going, Oh, we want to build this. And what do you think owners are going to want? And I went, well, have you talked to anybody? Cause I'm an owner and I wouldn't want any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, <laughs> so I think, I think you have to, it's gotta be, it's gotta meet a real need and, and, and work with real human beings and the technology is the vehicle. If the yep. technology is the vehicle, then it, you're much more likely to be successful. And the final thing is uh, one of my recent episodes, which I'm going to release pretty soon, my guest said something that was pretty profound to me and I hadn't thought about it, but, you know, we always talk about the sunk cost fallacy. You know, you've invested so much money, time, energy into it. And so it's hard to let go of something, but you need to let go of something, you know. But what he said was that the sunk cost fallacy should include the learning. And a lot of times we forget that, you know, there was a huge amount of learning. Yeah, it cost us, but the learning that came out of it, you know, is so valuable. So it just reminded me that if a listener out there, if you're stuck in a situation where you have sunk in a lot of cost, you've sunk in a lot of money, you've sucked in a lot of energy, but you realize it just may not work. If you walk away from it, it's so painful to walk away. But the truth is you're going to leave with a huge amount of learning. And I think that's one of the things that you remind me of through your story. Yeah, what I call that is that I had to pay my tuition, right? So the sunk cost is my tuition fee. And when I started seeing that whole experience as being a tuition for the next step in my business to be able to scale, I went, huh, that's not so bad. There we go. We feel better right there. Yeah, I can <laughs> I look I can at all the things I wasted my money on in my time. And I can feel a little bit better that I learned from each and every one of them. Well, it's your tuition. Maybe it's the tuition in that for learning how to spend appropriately or learning how, I mean, you know, so yeah. it can, it can also be that you had to learn something the hard way. Yep. Maybe your tuition fee was higher because you wouldn't listen, wouldn't exactly. listen to the, to the stuff that was around you that was trying to speak with you. So now I would like to, you to put yourself you know, into the shoes of a young person or any person listening right now who is trying to push an idea in a similar way maybe that you were doing. And based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? A developer relationship with somebody who has the knowledge you need over a period of time. Allow yourself to develop that relationship and learn from that person and allow the time that's required for the process. It's like a plant growing. You can't just yank on it and say, grow. You have to create the environment. And to work with someone, if I, if I had found someone who had the technology that I needed and 
who could just become a friend. And I actually did find that person through the process kind of vicariously and has remained a friend and, and a, a confident for all sorts of things. So if I want to launch anything, I'm going to talk to her first because she's, she's one of the top people in the world. I would never have found her if I wouldn't have been through that issue. So it was, yeah, find one person who can be your your mentor. And, you know, eventually it becomes reverse mentorship too, because you teach the other person. Yep. But yeah, I would say that's the one action item. Great advice. So ladies and gentlemen, you've got the advice. Now go out and do it. Find that person and start that conversation because what you've just heard is it takes time. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I'll get the book, my book published. It's I'm just about finished. I'm on the last chapter. So get it published and out in the world and have some uh, speaking engagements around it so that people can learn from it. Fantastic. Well, we're going to be all cheering you on with that. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com. I look forward to seeing you there. As we conclude, Marie, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I'm sure I had lots of things, inspiration. Well, that was a laugh. I love that parting word. I think, I think I'm just going to say, have a little fun with what you're doing. <laughs> Amen. And I just yeah. see you laughing and smiling and that makes my day better. So ladies and gentlemen, take that advice, have fun, enjoy and laugh it up. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.